Okay, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Friends, when, when I was uh, sort of in primary school, I, uh, we, we, we used to go to this dam called Chelmsford Dam. I'm sure it's something, something uh, different. It's called something different today. But we would, we would drive, we would, not, well, we, would, we would usually be dropped off there. But on this occasion, me and my, I think we were about four, we had this amazing plan. We're going to cycle to the dam. We're going to camp there, but we're going to cycle there. It's about 30 kilometers away, which is not, I think it's doable, so we thought. And the only problem is that we are very ill-prepared. We've got amazing ideas, but very bad gear. So we take our, our sort of, I don't know, 100 rand bikes, and we put the charcoal on the bike. We put the tent on the bike. We had a pan on the bike, eggs sort of at this side. And we looked like those, those trolley recyclers, you know, the sort of the, the, the packing of our, of our bikes. And I think my mom took a picture of us as we set off on this very epic journey. And because it's a small town, as you go through the town, people know you, and they stop us, and like, well, where are you guys going? We're going to go camping. And they're hooting at us as we pass, pass them by, and you know, we're trying to drive past a, a, a pretty girl's house. Hopefully, she's outside. But we're very aware. Everybody's seeing us. Everybody's high-fiving us. Everybody's hooting at us. And then that was about five kilometers. And now we're outside of the town. Now we're just going through farmlands. Nobody's hooting anymore. Nobody's high-fiving anymore. Nobody's noticing anymore. This pan is hitting my back wheel like every, every three seconds. And it's this massive uphill. And all the jokes and all the excitement just suddenly disappears. And we're asking ourselves, why are we doing this? Our parents offered to drop us off with all the gear. It wasn't as if we didn't have transport. They said, we can easily drop you off. And we said, no. It's an adventure. And, and then eventually, we just sat next to the road. And we thought, maybe we can camp here, next to, the, next to this, the, this little stretch over here. We had our fishing rods. We wanted to go fish. There wasn't a water by, but at that stage, we were willing to compromise. And eventually, we hitchhiked. But we hitchhiked with four bikes and all our camping gear. And luckily, a farmer who was curious drove past and gave us a lift all the way to the dam. We were very happy about that. And then we gave him my mother's number and asked him, please phone her and tell her to fetch us tomorrow morning at, at 11. Now, here's the point. It's easy to start a race well. It's easy to, in the beginning, there's a lot of excitement. In the beginning, there's a lot of high fives, there's music. Going through the town, everybody's watching. Oh, you guys are going on a journey. That seems very exciting. Good luck, good riddance. But it's much more difficult to finish well. And the word or the words that the New Testament use to describe ending well is a term that we, use, that we call endurance or elsewhere, perseverance. And that is very important in faith. I think we, we have an overemphasis in the church on how a story begins. And there's nothing wrong with it. 
But everybody's sharing a story of testimony, how I came to faith, right? So those are the stories that everybody, oh, this is how I came to faith. And it's true, we should celebrate those stories. But I suspect that the Bible is far more interested in how somebody ends their faith, how somebody endures, how somebody perseveres. So in Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 2, we encounter the following passage, Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Friends, any meaningful human accomplishment requires perseverance. Whether it is getting a degree, whether it is playing an instrument, it doesn't matter the the accomplishment. It usually requires perseverance, endurance. There's this couple, and they're lying in bed, and the wife looks over her shoulder and says, when we would lie in bed in the past, you would always just hold my hand. And then she feels this hand creeping up and holding her hand. And she says, okay, well, that worked. Maybe I can protect this a bit f- further. So she says, and you always used to spoon me a little bit. You know, you would cuddle and, you know. The next moment she feels uh, this, this body is creeping closer and there's a bit of spooning going on. And then she says, okay, well, let me take it one step further. And she says, you always knew, used to just nibble on my ear just a little bit. And he's out of the bed, and she doesn't know what's going on. She asks him, what, what, what's going on? What's wrong? And he says, no, I'm just going to go get my teeth. And the beauty, of that, the beauty of that story is that it's easy to be romantic and to spoon and to be all touchy-feely when you're young and the bodies are nice and it's, it's, it's still a novelty. But when you're old... And it doesn't come naturally to either of you to still persevere, to still endure. That is when it becomes something. That is when it becomes a, a virtue. So in the book of James, he, he says the following. He says, this is the type of approach. This is how I want you to, to approach the whole question of, uh, uh, of endurance. He says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So his approach, his his secret to endurance is he says that you must consider it all joy when you meet all kinds of, of trials. So, again, friends, if we want to understand this biblical secret to the transformation of how you endure in faith, the question that James wants you to ask, that Hebrews is asking as well, is you need to ask yourself, how is a particular trial or how is suffering, how does it benefit me? That's not our natural response to suffering. But when you encounter something difficult... The question that you, through the eyes of faith, should ask is, how does this benefit me? 
Now, you guys might have picked up, when I started reading in Hebrews 12, we, uh, the, the verse starts by saying, Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, he is referring to Hebrews 11, what preceded that passage, and there he is giving examples of ex- uh, 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 example after example of people who endured in the biblical story. And probably the biggest airtime is given to Abraham, who is the father of of faith. And then he just reflects briefly on it, and he says this in Hebrews 11 from verse 17. He says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So, so Hebrews is writing to a group of people, or the, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who's ask, who, who, who are doubting. They've got questions. They, they, they're in this path of faith, but now they've hit a massive hurdle, and doubt creeps in. And what he does is he says, I want you to draw on, on Abraham and all of these other guys as well. Moses, he, he mentions quite a few of them, but he spends a lot of time, uh, time on Abraham. And the story that he focuses on is the story where, where Abraham is called to offer up Isaac. Now, I'm go- not going to go into any great detail in the story. It deserves a lot of attention because it's one of the most famous stories in the world, and it's also very problematic from a modern perspective, Right. But uh, we're not going to exhaust it. But just to, just to uh, highlight certain aspects of it. So Abraham is called to, to offer up his son. And we know this, that the beginning of the story says, and God did this to test Abraham. Now, I mean, it's a, it's a horrible test. It's very difficult. But one thing that is interesting in the Bible, whenever there is a, whenever it says, and, and God tested them, he never tests the pagans. He never tests people that are not in the family of faith. In that sense, test is sort of an act of love. So when God tests someone, it's always just his people and the leaders of, of his people. And that's what James also wants us to do. He, he wants us to interpret our trials and interpret these tests as a gift of sorts. Okay, but let's, let's just do a re- recap of Abraham. So, so Abraham and his wife Sarah, they've given up on kids. They are very old, and, and they, they don't think that they're going to have any children, you know, not, not even to speak of a son. And a son in the ancient world was pretty much the pinnacle of what you could achieve as a family. And I know it doesn't make a lot of sense to us today, but your identity, your status, everything was rooted in your ability to bear a son or, or, or more than one, if, 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 if at all possible. It doesn't matter if you are pretty. It doesn't matter if you are rich. If you didn't have a son, you were nothing in the ancient world. That's why Hannah, even though she is the preferred wife of her husband, she doesn't have a son and her life is meaningless. Rachel is the pretty one, 
Leah is not the, the pretty one. She is the one with, and the Bible uses the euphemism, she had weak eyes, okay? So, so she's, not the, she's not the pretty one. I, I would imagine that um, if you go to the Middle East today, the only thing that you actually see are their eyes. So you have to extrapolate from the eyes that, oh, yeah, I think she's pretty. But Rachel was pretty, and Leah had weak eyes. And yet, Rachel says, says to Jacob, give me a son or else I die. So even though she was the pretty one, even though she was the preferred one, Leah was the one that was blessed. Why? Because she was able to bear sons. So in the ancient world, having a son was everything. Abraham and Sarah, they're old. They don't have kids. They're not buying green bananas anymore. And there's this promise. There is this promise that, that they will have a son. They they will have a son. And when they hear that promise, they say, they, 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 they laugh. That's what they do. They laugh. It's impossible. It's a sarcastic laugh. And then Isaac is born, and they laugh again. They laugh so loud that they call the son laughter. That's what Isaac means, laughter. It's an ugly laugh when everybody when Isaac was there as a baby, nobody had teeth in that whole house. And there's this promise. And the promise is that you will, you will have a, a, a lineage. You will have children as much as the stars in, in, in the sky, as much as the, the sand on the sea. And then comes this terrible command. You must sacrifice this child, this promise. And the laughter disappears. And he has to walk to this place called Moriah. And it must have been a terrible, terrible journey. Isaac has wood on his back that he's carrying. And Abraham carries the, the, the fire and the knife. And there's this terrible conversation between them. Isaac asks him, where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? Abraham can only answer by saying, the Lord will provide. And he is, as we know, called to sacrifice his son. Now, this is very difficult for us to understand as moderns. But just try and think about it in, 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 in this way. This, is, this story is not about Isaac. This is not about the psychological damage that, that happened to Isaac. It's not about Isaac at all. It's about Abraham, who now has to sacrifice the thing that is most important to him. And in this case, it is having a legacy. It is having a lineage, which is the most important thing. Are, are, are you willing to sacrifice that? And it must have been super uncertain. And he walks. And one can just imagine that if you read his lips, he was just shaking his head and saying, I don't understand, I don't understand, I don't understand. And there's the temptation to run to the conclusion too quickly and say, and then God provided a lamb, and he didn't have to sacrifice Isaac, yay. But that would do injustice to this particular story, and it will do injustice to, to, to life as well. We shouldn't run to the conclusion too quickly. We must recognize that we all at some stage will walk on the, on the path to Moriah. And life is hard. And we shouldn't be surprised by it because the Bible is not surprised by the fact that life is hard. In John 16, there's this verse that says, in this world you will suffer. 
in this world you will suffer. We don't say that to each other often enough. Maybe just look at the person next to you and say, in this world you will suffer. <laughs> As a matter of fact, the question is not whether you will suffer. The question is, does it mean anything? That is the question that James and Hebrews wants us to answer. The question is not whether you will suffer. You will suffer. It assumes that there will be suffering. You can't read the Bible and be surprised when suffering comes. Here's the other problem. Abraham had very little info. He doesn't know that this is just a test. He didn't know that. He's just walking obediently on this, on this path. Who's the paradigmatic sufferer in the Bible? Job. Does Job know why he's suffering? No. Does he ever find out why he suffered? No. He's never provided an answer. But yet, he is radically obedient and walking in this path. Friends, we often confuse, we think faith is this unwavering certainty. And we just walk and I've got faith. I'm strong. I've got faith. I've seen it now how people respond around me in the face of suffering. And they feel obliged to just say, I've got faith. It's going to happen. I'm going to proclaim it. I'm going to name it. That's what's going to happen. That is not the biblical vision. Faith is full of uncertainty. Faith is full of doubt. But the one thing it does have is obedience. You walk in the dark, not because you see anything, not because it feels good, but because you are obedient. Hebrews says that Abraham had faith, that even though he couldn't make sense of this at all, he had faith that God was able to turn this situation into good. He can make something of this terrible situation. And then as Abraham lifts that dagger, he is stopped. Abraham, Abraham. And we can breathe. Ah, the story ends well. Yes, the lineage has continued. Last week, we looked at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. One thing that I didn't mention is the following. That Jesus, although he knows that this is what he needs to do, he needs to go to the cross, and this is why he came, to give his life as a ransom to many. He needs to go to the cross. When he's in Gethsemane, he says, please, Lord, let this cup pass from me. And you know what some commentators think? They think that maybe Jesus had in the back of his mind that even though the son must be sacrificed, maybe God will provide in the same way that he provided for Abraham when he spared Isaac's life. Maybe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is waiting for, for the, the, the line, Jesus, Jesus, now I know that you were willing to lay down your life, but I'm going to make a different plan. Don't worry about it. And he waits, and there's nothing. He hears nothing. And eventually, he says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I'm not hearing your voice anymore. You know what's interesting? The, the place where, where Isaac was sacrificed is Mount Moriah. That is where the temple stood and the temple foundation stands to this day. Jesus was sacrificed not far from that mountain. And like Isaac carried the wood on his back, so Jesus carried the wood on his back. 
Only this time, the knife fell. This time, the son died. This time, the father grieved. And there was darkness. And it is terrible. And we run too quickly <laughs> to the Sunday. But we need to pause at the Friday. It is terrible. It's the worst moment ever. It's complete darkness. But eventually we get to the resurrection. Maybe something that I've, I've said before is that they say that Protestants struggle more with suffering than Catholics. Maybe the reason for that is that if you go into any Catholic church, the thing that you are looking at all the time is what? Jesus on the cross. In the Protestant church, we don't have a lot of art, but if you see art, it's usually Jesus risen. <laughs> so we just want to jump there, and we, we must jump there, right? The cross definitely led to the, to, to, to the resurrection, but we shouldn't go there too quickly. Otherwise, we risk being surprised by suffering. But the story does tell us that even though this story is one of profound, profound darkness. God can still use it. He can still turn it into the most beautiful and meaningful story and event that the universe has ever known. And that is the hope that James is holding before us to this day, and Hebrews. That hope that God can turn this darkness into something is what we need to hold on to. We need to interpret our present trials through that lens, that God can use this. What James says is he uses this word, consider it joy. Consider it joy when you are confronted with all sorts of, of trials, when your faith is being tested. Consider it joy. Now he says trials of various kinds. Now why that is important is, it's sometimes easier for us to see God's hand in gratuitous suffering. Most people, if you ask them where did they experience the most spiritual growth in their lives, they will tell you when I went through some horrible suffering. This can be statistically proven over and over again. But James doesn't just say when you go through horrible suffering and trials. He says all kinds of trials. So what we need to add in here are all these little trials where we are being tested and where it's an opportunity for our faith to be perfected. So here's the thing. How do you handle it when there's a taxi or a driver driving in the yellow lane just speeding past you whilst you are stuck in the traffic jam? I think James would say that's a trial, all kinds of trials. Now there it's easy to swear but now I'm on the way to the hospital, you know, to this person who's dying. I want you to suffer and suffer well, and you need to experience this trial. And, but but, 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 but I'm, I'm swearing at the taxi driver. That's also a trial, all kinds of trial. The queue at home affairs. How do you handle that? I have failed that test over and over again in my life. One day, one day, I will not fail it. How do you handle the colleague baby? You know, everything will be nice in our house and, um, and Lorraine and I would be very lovey-dovey and, you know, I, I would go get my teeth 
you know, in the evening, which is actually not a joke. I mean, she married me with false teeth. And, and then when the child is acting out, you know what I've encountered? It's usually our child, but when that child is difficult, your child is crying. Your child is doing this. It becomes your child. How do you handle that trial? How do you handle that, that test? The, the thing about a trial is it's always, an, it's, it's always an unexpected encounter. It's not something that you prepare for. Again, when you're driving to the hospital and you're coming to church and you're thinking, oh, no, I've got this suffering, I've got this ordeal, how am I going to deal with it? It's easier because you are somehow prepared for it. But the trials that we are tested in are also those trials that we are completely unprepared for, and we usually fail it miserably. A trial is that snarky email that you get from a colleague. A trial is the criticism that you get at work or uh, in the family. It is a family, it's a family fight. Those things are all trials. You know where I failed miserably this, this week? We went to, to Harry and Annette to visit them, and I'm... We, we get there and everything is fine and we're in the queue and we want to go into the security estate. And we've got a number, a security number that they give us and they say their system is off. And I say, okay, well, that's unfortunate. But the only thing dividing us is this little boom. So why don't you just take a picture of me and my family or, you know, take my ID card and let me in, you know? Your system is down, so now you guys have to make a different plan. He says, no, no we, can't, we can't do that. Now the kids are screaming in this car, and we wait there for half an hour um, out, outside. And I say, okay, do me a, just, just, just help me. I'm, I'm going to now, can you tell all of these cars behind me to just back up? Um, and, uh, and I'm going to try and reverse, and then we're going to just not visit our friends today and because you guys are completely incompetent. And... Lorraine eventually just says, you want to just try and listen to the guy. What is he saying? And he says, look, our system physically does not allow us to lift this boom. It's not like I can lift it up. It must be opened somehow by the system. There's no other way. And I didn't hear that. I was just calling this guy incompetent, incompetent, incompetent. And he just says, we are at the mercy of a machine that is down. That is, that is the only problem. I failed miserably in that trial. Consider these things, consider, consider, consider. Consider these things to mean more than you think they do. When you use the word consider, it's, it's a different way of saying you have to run the numbers again. You have to recalculate. You know, I'm not sure if the GPS still does it. Do they still do it, like recalculating? Um, it is to try and figure out how, what is a different way to approach this particular situation. So, for example, if you somehow win a billion rand, okay, a billion, a billion rands, rand or rands, if, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, good, it's a good thing. Will you, Marie, say, I consider this billion rand to have a good impact on my budget? Is that, is that something that you will say? No, you don't consider it. It's super obvious, right? You no considering is necessary. It does have a very positive impact on on your budget. No consideration is needed. 
But the Bible says, and the New Testament in particular says, I want you to consider suffering. Because at first, our natural reaction is not to like it. Our natural reaction is not to see anything good in it. I want you to reconsider. It's not obvious. I want you to look at these trials, at suffering, through the lens of faith. James says there is an opportunity here in this trial to practice perseverance, to create endurance in your life. If you just do a word study in the Bible of consider, you will find all sorts of, uh, all sorts of context. So for example, Paul says in Philippians 2, consider others higher than yourself. Nowhere does Paul, says, does Paul say, consider yourself higher than others. Why? Because that's the natural position. I consider my own, uh, you know, my, I, I consider myself higher and more important than others, so I'm always trying to benefit myself. He doesn't need to tell me that. But now he says, through the lens of faith, I want you to consider others higher than, than yourself. In that same passage in Philippians 2, it says, Christ considered equality with God, not as something to hold on to, but he emptied himself and he went to the cross. Why does it need consideration? Because it doesn't come naturally. It's nice to have this intimacy with God the Father. If you want to go to the cross, it takes a lot of consideration, a lot of rethinking, a lot of recalculating. Hebrews 11.26 says, Moses considered the suffering that he eventually experienced more than the treasures of Egypt. He was a prince of Egypt. It was very comfortable in the palace. And now he's just aimlessly walking through the desert with stiff-necked people for 40 years. But he considered that is more important, that is more worthy, that is more meaningful than the life that I have in, in the palace. We need to reconsider our problems, our trials, our suffering through the lens of faith, through the lens of the resurrection. In other words, we shouldn't just look at our problems we should look through our problems. We shouldn't just look at our trials. We should try and look through our trials. And friends, that takes a lifetime of practice. And it's not something that we can do by ourselves. It's something that we do in community. That's why I, I often laugh when, I, when I'm in a Bible study in the cell group and somebody would, would relay their suffering and they would say, this is what's happening at work, or this is what's happening in the family. And then everybody will, will get the cue, that's horrible, that's terrible, no man, how dare they? And then you go just a little bit deeper, because you're a little bit further removed from it, then somebody would say, well, you know that maybe this is an opportunity that you should see to forgive that person or to go and talk to that person. And it comes as very annoying because it's not your natural perspective. But, but in the community of faith, somebody is just a little bit further removed from that trial so that they can say, how are you going to persevere? How are you going to endure in this particular situation? James, the historical James, knows something about trials. He was the brother of Jesus. And they grew up very poor. As a matter of fact, their family situation wasn't great at all. One would think it's nice growing up with Jesus. But that doesn't fit the facts because their father died at a young age. In the ancient world, there's a reason why the Bible says take care of the widows and the orphans. Because if the father died, it meant the income died. There's no life insurance. That's, people are, are, are in trouble. We also know from different passages in the Bible that 
that, G, that Mary was covered with a lot of shame and a lot of suspicion. She was this, this debaucherous woman who had a child out of wedlock. People calculated, they considered the numbers, and they said, this cannot be Joseph's son. Something else is going on here. This is out of wedlock, what, what happened here. So there would have been a lot of shame surrounding, surrounding uh, Mary. They were poor. We also know that because when Jesus was born, they offered up two little doves, which is the lowest sacrifice that you can give that was given to the lowest uh, sort of class in, in ancient Israel. They grew up poor. And then his brother, Jesus, has this incredible ministry, but James does not believe. It says so. I think it's in John 6 that he, he, James didn't believe. His brothers didn't believe him. At one point, they tried to stop Jesus because he's embarrassing the family. That's why they tried to kill him in Nazareth, because he's embarrassing the family. And if you embarrass the family, it was terrible to everyone involved. We always think it's easy to grow up with Jesus, but maybe it wasn't. You know? Maybe James, when he was a teenager, told Jesus, you always think you're right. You know? Maybe you asked him, who do you think you are, God? <laughs> you know? I don't think it's fun growing up with Jesus if he's your brother. At the cross, Jesus hands Mary over to the disciple John. If you double-click on that, you realize that that's actually a terrible situation. At that stage, these, their sons have abandoned and shunned the family, probably, because... It was the son's responsibility to look after a mother. Jesus hands Mary over to John, who's not a relative. But at that stage, James and, and the other brothers have completely shunned Jesus and Mary. And that's what you did in the ancient world because you wanted to protect your family honor. And these people are not doing your family honor any favors. And then Jesus dies. And in 1 Corinthians 15... Paul gives us a list of all the people that Jesus appeared to. And he, he, he would sort of group them and say he appeared to the disciples and he appeared to these people and he appeared to, to so many people at one point. And then he focuses on, on James and he says, and then he also appeared to James. He names him specifically. And that must have changed his life. Not it must have, it did change his life. The skeptic brother became a believer. And you can just imagine that interaction where, where James must have tried to explain himself. I'm so sorry I failed you. I'm so sorry I didn't believe in you. I'm so sorry I let you go to the cross. I wasn't there. I, I, I abandoned you. I abandoned our mother. And you can just imagine Jesus holding up his hands with massive scars in it and just say, Stop. Don't even worry about it. And that changed James's life to such an extent that he became the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. You know what his name was? James the Just. They called him James the Just. The Jews, the poor Jews loved him because this guy was obsessed with just always helping the poor. There's this funny line in Galatians where Paul says, and then I went to James to meet up with James, and James said, yeah, you've got the same gospel. And the only thing that James said is, just remember the poor. <laughs> just remember the poor. This guy was obsessed. So Paul would come and say, listen, do we have the same gospel? Yeah, 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 we've got the same gospel. 
don't forget the poor. This guy was so passionate about helping other people that he was called James the Just in Jerusalem where the Christians were very unpopular. And eventually, this James the Just, after failing so many times at various trials early in his life, he was eventually taken to the temple, uh, uh, to the temple roof and he was thrown off the roof because of his testimony to Jesus Christ. And he wasn't quite dead at the bottom, so they finished the job by stoning him to death. And he did it gladly. If you read his, his, his letter, he says, consider all trials a joy. He's not just saying that as somebody who's giving us cheap advice, you know, these, these cards that you, that you buy in CNA or whatever. This is not some, some, some cheap little quote that people have in their office. This comes from a person who experienced a lot of trials. Eventually, the biggest trial of all, he was martyred to death. But he became the type of person who rejoiced in his trials. He became the type of person that endured till the end. He had perseverance, even though he knew this will cost him his life, and it did. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we often think that when we come to faith, then everything will be okay. We have a very narrow view of what that might mean. We've got very sentimental ideas sometimes about what life should be like. It is our prayer this morning, Lord, that we will be a community where we know and where we often remind each other that in this world we will suffer. That is a promise that you made to us. You finish that verse, however, by saying, but we shouldn't fear because you have overcome. It is our prayer, Lord, that when we experience suffering, when we are confused, when we go through all kinds of trials, whether they are big or small, when we experience doubt, when we experience your absence, that we will be able to endure, that we will reconsider what we are experiencing now through the lens of faith. When we go through those things, Lord, it is impossible for us to think that it, is, that it makes sense. It is difficult for us to think that this is your will. It is difficult for us to think of you at all. But help us to practice this discipline of endurance, of reconsidering what is happening in our lives through the lens of Jesus Christ, through the cross, and through the resurrection. Lord Jesus, it's, it's easy to start well. It's easy to high-five each other when it's going well. It is our prayer, Lord, that we will become people of endurance, that we will persevere when things are tough till the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.